So would we like to talk about developer happiness? Who picked this topic? <laughs> it's from the GitHub issues. And then I think Justin was the first one who thumbs up. Yeah, I like developer happiness. I like being happy. I'm a developer. So, so good deal. Yeah, good deal. Show's over. <laughs> Len doesn't like to be happy. Is it because you're programming Ruby? Uh, I mean, that's not... I know you're just trolling, but that's not a bad assumption. I think the tools and languages you, you use matter. So, Javon, what is happiness? Well, no, what is developer happiness? Why do you have to qualify happiness? Well, I know it's not. It's It's not being burnt out and what makes people happy i like i like uh being challenged uh, i like working on something interesting i like uh i like feeling um comfortable i guess is one word uh, or safe like on my team like the people that i'm working with that i trust and feel good working around what else you get to voice your opinion i guess that's feeling safe though you get a chance to voice your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my so who has a cell phone from 2003? <laughs> it's my alarm clock. It's not 2003. It's Passion Pit from 2011. <laughs> that just make, that song makes me happy. Developer happiness. Exactly. I think the the work hours, probably. So. So not being burnt out or like something else well i feel like burnout happens do you refer to not doing things at 7 a.m <laughs> yes <laughs> uh i feel burnout is a sum of other things or do you, do you mean uh having working hours that fit your your lifestyle both i think not working 60 hours and also if you have a lifestyle set up if you, you have a life <laughs> yeah that you can enjoy it i really want these sandwiches you guys <laughs> you used to look at the castor pub website yes it's just i want is these that gonna lead to your so happiness fam? isn't there some stuff about how like your stomach is a uh, one of the largest factors in your emotions well there's uh the the halt uh whatever that the hulk halt, halt h-a-l-t but uh if you're if you're not feeling well if you're if you're sad just check if you're uh hungry angry lonely or tired are you sure that's not for babies? Uh, well, that works for babies too, which is why when when our baby wakes up, first thing she does is eat, and then hour and a half later she goes to sleep. Time <laughs> can't leave her alone for too long. Alone. I don't know if she ever gets angry. How about having like a diverse workplace or coworkers that are like the same age as you but have different interests as you? So you're saying you want diversity, but only if they're your age? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm saying both, right? So okay. Like diversity, yes. But then there's the other. But you don't want to be the only one. Yeah, like it's like you. hard being the, the only one in like a 10-year gap. Right. Because all those other people are definitely on different paths to life already. That's interesting. So I would say lo- a large scale of diversity in your office is probably healthy. I think that's the plus of a bigger company. You get that for free. Well, you get you get more quantity, but percentages don't always yeah. get better. I wonder if anyone ever tried to make like a Maslow's hierarchy of developer needs. Um, I think there is one. Is there? Yeah, I remember. Surely, this is the internet. <laughs> uh, no, these are just adding more developer to not help. <laughs> I mean, if you were to make a developer pyramid, what would you put at the bottom? The bottom source control. 
Ooh, yeah, that's a good, very basic, basic thing. <laughs> Most basic need. Okay, here's one, which is, uh, I'll go bottom to top, environment, trust, team, value, quality. And then there's a cupcake on top of it. Uh, which obviously oh. means free cupcakes or ice cream freezer Chemex setup. There was another one, Hanselman, Scott Hanselman. Yeah. Stripe uh, patient, oh well. <laughs> Google Cache, man. Google Cache. Uh, so the next step of hierarchy of needs are working web servers. <laughs> this sounds like it's from the 90s or something. Or early uh, 2000s. Yeah, because why would your web server is not a special problem? <laughs> I mean, I actually, I think um, it sounds like you mentioning version control makes me think of uh, Julia Evans's interviewing thing that I shared a while ago because I actually you could use that as the because a lot of the questions are basically filters for do you have your shit together and so then some of them probably work into the pyramid because I remember that source control was definitely on there versioning and um, automated deployments uh, you know I made testing all the good stuff I think I kind of take those things for granted sometimes because when I came oh, in. I definitely do. And it's, you know, but that's why I think it's interesting that she wrote a post about all these questions because it's always whenever you, you know, start a, a gig and you're like, wait, wait, what? What don't you do? Because it didn't come up because you assumed that they had their shit together. And that was an invalid assumption. I always like to, when I start somewhere new, uh, notes of everything that I find uh, jarring or surprising. Because once you've been somewhere for a few weeks or a few months, that stuff becomes normal. It'll start to seem normal. Yeah. yeah. So I'll I, I keep a list like what I find surprising. And I tell other people when they start a project to do the same thing. It's also important to note that, you know, when you do get used to things, um, it, their effect on your happiness is not going to be as prominent. Do you guys know about the study about lottery winners and accident victims? Is it that actually, most lottery winners are accident victims? <laughs> yes. Um, no, like, uh, so it turns out that if you win the lottery uh, or if you are paralyzed in an accident, you're not going to be any happier being in either group. So lottery winners, when you win the lottery, it's like the most exciting thing that's ever happened. And you basically, everything's down the hill from there. That's going to be the happiest moment and everything else is going to be more depressing. Uh, and the reverse is true for an accident victim, right? You like lose a leg and yeah, there's weeks or months of, of being depressed. But then it turns out like your humans are just very used to like acclimating to a new reality. And happiness is kind of like plateaus. In uh, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah, I always had a theory that it doesn't take longer than a month for you to adapt to a situation. I think it actually, there is actually some research on it, and it's about three months. Mm. So if you if you lose a limb, that something like that, you'll... So that's also good research for understanding people with depression, too, because it's basically, it's kind of like everyone has a baseline, and then there's just fluctuations along the baseline. Um and what happens with people with depression is that they're, sometimes their baseline is just lower. And also sometimes they just have more propensity to have more downward trends than upward trends. So that's a, a good line graph to help people understand happiness. When you guys are interviewing for at a new company that you don't know anyone at or something like that, how do you ensure that? How do you kind of bring out that this is what I'm looking for and do they have it? I don't know if I said this on here before, but I, I tend to ask people to walk me through their day. Yeah, I do say. And it's a very it's a very honest and innocuous question that tells you kind of everything you want to know. Because if someone starts with, you know, well, I get in here about, you know, 8 o'clock and then blah, 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 and I leave about 7 p.m., then you're like, oh, okay, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> 
thank you for everything I need to know. Or I think uh, I think it been you, Pan, that mentioned before you ask if people uh, eat at the desks or together. Yeah, that's a good one too. Cause that that comes into the you know as someone's telling me about their day, I ask where they eat lunch. So you can find that out. Yeah, I like to ask about typical day, and I also ask like uh, how work gets done. Like where does work come from, and what is your process? I I like the phrasing of that. If you actually use that of how does work get done. Because if the perception of how work gets done and then how people provide environments for people to work can be an interesting thing to find out. Yeah. If, if you're like way for work getting done is like marketing coming over and yelling at something in two hours. Not really what I'm looking for. Yeah. Which I worked at a place like that before. Nice. <laughs> Just being yelled at by marketing. Not yelled at, but it's like, hey, this is an emergency today. And every day is an emergency and nothing goes through any kind of prioritization or discussion. That just bothers me because how bad are you at your job if marketing is an emergency? <laughs> well, it's, it's like marketing entails, I guess. This client Maybe the sure. I think it still applies. Just if you aren't good at keeping your clients happy without making everything an emergency, yeah, then exactly. you deserve to lose your clients. Also, a good question I like to ask of uh, like startup is, um, are you profitable? <laughs> oh, dude, yeah, like, that's I love that. I think that's on the questions I'm asking. One, it's yeah, that's seriously the first one in financials business models. Oh, nice. Because yeah, and it's how are you going to make money? <laughs> uh, that's we. I'm more interested if people are actually going to use it or are using it. I mean, I think we talked about, about like on our quitting episode. Money. I mean, unless unless you're going to like take equity or something, which I would probably not do. Like. I'm just more like I'm not I'm not going to be there in two years, so <laughs> I don't care if they are generally. I just well, I want people to be using my product. That's like where I get a source. I guess of I I mean I also do want to know if they're solvent for the next six months. Well, if they're so. if they're making money in the products and somebody's using it or somebody's paying for it. But there's also plenty of like plenty of products that have a high number of users and interesting problems, but don't make any money. Right, I would. And they have enough. They have enough uh, big money funding to have runway. That's true. Yeah, Twitter was the first thing that came to mind. As long as you don't get assigned to the sad, sad team that's responsible for making Twitter money. I've heard that team's very hard to be on. Does <laughs> the marketing manager yell at you? I don't think that's what happens. I think they're like, wait, what? How are we supposed to make money? <laughs> the idea was not was 140 characters, not 140 characters that make money. I guess theoretically that was the idea. But What if Twitter like didn't suck? I mean, I wait. Wait, what's bad about it? I I, you, I love Twitter, but like, yeah, they have the the money problem, like the ad, and their whole uh, their issues with uh, like harassment and abuse reports people? that don't actually <laughs> go anywhere. I mean, Sounds like you're describing the internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, I that's the thing. It's it's an open thing. People are awful. Yeah, and Twitter would be great if it wasn't for those users. <laughs> Yeah, so I found it weird that everyone was mentioning like all these process things, which I, I mean, they are important, right? Like if you're spending a lot of your day with ceremony that could be automated, like that's not fun. But well, are I'm you, always are inspired you by that like, that's like a base level thing. Or that's like level zero before you even get to developer happiness. I think so. Yeah, I just take that for granted. I could agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that. I think that's what we were saying. That's what Javon was saying too. That we just take it for granted once we have it and you assume that everyone else will because it just makes sense like why would you choose to you know deploy without deploy by doing something more than pushing a button if you're deploying to a web server yeah like it's just silly but i'm always so, interested in the in the product itself like that i think that has a big measure of my happiness like if i'm just serving ads to people which i did for like two years i'm a lot less inspired it is sad that a lot of the work available is serving ads. <laughs> Although, well, so 
I should take that back a little bit because at that job, uh, we built the system to like let you just manage like hugely complex campaigns. So you have a campaign for a movie and it's literally on like thousands of sites and we automated this. And uh, a woman whose job it was to do that, like literally almost cried because it would take her like three days to like submit all those ads to all the different campaigns manually. And she's just like, oh my God, that was like the most soul sucking menial task. And then she just like press a button and it would happen. Is that instrumental to your happiness, Len, when someone uses the product that you're building? Yeah, I'm, I like to think, you know, we make somebody's life better. What would your ideal product be? Like, do you want like something that is um, like Twitter, Instagram, like not profitable, but like massively used? Or do you want something that's like developer focused? Um, I mean, ideal. I don't know. I don't, I don't know about ideal. Something people use and makes their lives happy. You should make uh, like Amazon Fresh Direct for paleo food. How is that different? Isn't than that called Amazon Fresh <laughs> Direct? <laughs> yeah, but uh, curated. Beth and I are becoming mostly paleo. She's all strict. Team she, vegetables. Team vegetables. She's uh, stricter than I am. Uh, but I had a realization that like you can't like eat anything from a from a toaster and be paleo. Nope, I don't own a toaster. Oh, it's bullshit. <laughs> I just want something toasted to put my almond butter on. So you need just a spoon. No, no, that's actually not correct. <laughs> you can't make gross dehydrated crackers and whatever. <laughs> they do have like coconut waffles. I'm gonna try that. You know, it's better than that. Mm, vegetarian plants. Plants. Yeah, I had a lot of. No, don't it's, okay. Nice. Stop it's okay. Plants. It's okay. I found you. I found you a paleo vegan book. So well, that's how I started. I was used to be vegetarian and vegan, and I went paleo vegetarian, uh, and I just felt a lot better. And that's, man, paleo vegetarian was like, I ate nothing but eggs and, and beans for like every meal and it was disgusting. Well, this <laughs> book is paleo vegan, so. No eggs. <laughs> so all plants. Last night uh, I had asparagus and red onion and spring greens and red cabbage sauteed together and I put beef on top of it. Great. So in fairness, I eat a lot more vegetables now that I'm paleo-ish than when I wasn't because when I was vegan, I mostly just ate plastic like just all these processed foods. Now I definitely eat vegetables in every meal. Why would so, vegan? There's a, there's a lot of junk food vegans. It's like the easiest. Pastatarians. Pastatarians. I mean, if you go out to like a diner, it's like, oh, can I have a house salad, hold the croutons, or like the French fries? <laughs> Pretty much your only option. Am I wrong, Pam? I mean, I go for the French fries. Yeah. I also yeah, try so. not to go to shitty diners. Yeah. They're the best. Though. There's also there's a lot of good tricks too for diners though. So maybe I mean surely you knew some of these. Like you could get hash browns with that if you ask them to be cooked in oil. You can get oatmeal. You like that's always really easy. And then if you get oatmeal, you can get a side of fruit, and then you can toss the fruit in your oatmeal. And um, there's also there's like a a like a underground vegan like IHOP sandwich trick or something where you order two pieces of dry toast and hash browns and then make yourself a sandwich. The problem with me, my entire adult life went from like mostly from veganism, brief stint to vegetarianism to like paleoishness. So I have never even been to an IHOP. <laughs> you know, I, I, I went to an IHOP uh, last year. There is one like right idea. next to your office. <laughs> like I, I went to the IHOP and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to get pancakes. It's going to be so good. I used to go to IHOP all the time when I was a kid. It was, it was gross. I was, I was just going to say that. I used to go to Denny's and IHOP all the time when I was a kid. And they were the greatest things. And now they like, felt like shit afterwards. Now it's like, oh man, no, I can't go there anymore. <laughs> I always make the joke that I'm apparently just a fan of not eating something. That you just invent new ways to cut out food groups. <laughs> apparently. 
that's it's not a good thing, Len. <laughs> but these things also contribute to developer happiness. Because if that's... your body is not healthy, then you're not going to be a happy person. True. Did you ever go into work and like without enough sleep and then you just try to go through that day of like not falling asleep at work and just have the most miserable day? Or you do like you do in high school when you just like sleep in your desk. Do a little nap jerk and your Yeah, yeah. Your, <laughs> your elbow just kind of oh, like I've jolts a, out. I've done a nap jerk in a meeting before <laughs> and I just got up and left. <laughs> that's yeah, just like, embarrassing. You're like, well, that's like that. you should just be embarrassed if that happens. And I was. Oh, that's I was just like, obviously I can't be here. <laughs> so I just left. That's torture. It's like, it's like being in the most boring meeting and trying not to fall asleep. It's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I recommend leaving. <laughs> That's how I fix it. If you can't stay awake, because you was, think that no one notices, but they definitely notice. I was wondering a name for that nap jerk. Falling asleep. Um, I nap jerked at a coffee shop the other day. It was, <laughs> it was bad. Why are you sleeping in a coffee shop? So it was right out. It was after the code retreat. I was super tired. Was <laughs> and like, so you gonna, went to go program at a coffee shop. I was like, I'm just going to close my eyes for a few minutes. What? Then I nap jerked. I was like. I need to go home now. <laughs> I think that can be a solid recommendation endorsed by Terry and Complete. If you're falling asleep, go home. <laughs> <laughs> so I think more offices it should be like acceptable to nap. Like Indie Hall has a nap couch. If you just need like a 20 minute refresher, you can just go take a nap. Are you sure it's not just called a couch? I think it, I think it's called a nap couch. You need to like sleep on something that everybody else has slept on. Gross. Yeah, All that's right. kind of gross. I mean, maybe you should, like, BYOB, bring your own blanket. Hmm. Yeah. BYOB. Like, kind of like at a hostel where you just, like, I, I wrap myself up like a taquito. <laughs> and then, like, none of myself is touching the bed that everyone else touches. How do you wrap yourself up? Um, talent? Once your wrap can't move. I, you just, you roll. <laughs> this is not that hard, Justin. I'm equating this to swaddling a baby. <laughs> I mean, it's not that tight. It's just kind of like making your own sleeping bag. So you just kind of fold yourself up. Try to nap once at work. It didn't work. Our couch isn't very comfortable, though. Did someone come wake you up? No, the couch just wasn't. Like, my, my we have one of those couches that are, like, square on every corner is sharp. So there's no place it's for an Ikea, to go. Yeah. Ikea couch. Ikea couches are not that great for napping. But I've also been surprised by some Ikea couches. I think it's the cheapest Ikea couch is not good for napping. There needs to be some some fluffiness for optimal napping. My problem is oh. if I'm falling asleep and I get up to go nap, I'm like not tired anymore by the time I get to the couch. Because you moved? Because I moved too. <laughs> like how on our earliest recording we're talking about sleeping. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably not a coincidence. Subconsciously we're all like, oh, we wish we were in bed. Yeah. I would also trade, like since you all recorded this early, I'll trade you if you want a late night recording again. I'll do another one. That was fun, Kels. It was past my bedtime. Mine too. Is anybody watching uh, Hack Summit this week? I tried. I turned it on yesterday, and it was someone talking about Visual Studio, and then I turned it off. <laughs> I turned for the same one, I think. Unless there's multiple yeah. Visual Studio talks. I turned yeah, that on. I think and turned it, it, off. it was the second one because the because it started. I didn't realize that it was all tuned to Pacific Pacific time. Because yeah. also, uh, see, like. We have computers to fix this problem. You can show a different time if you're if I'm on the East Coast. <laughs> like you don't have to hard code it to Pacific time. That's way too complex. Like, come on. <laughs> um, there were two talks that I wanted to see last night, but then when I tried to watch them, the DNS wouldn't resolve because probably because DNS simple is uh, was under attack. Oh. Um, 
fun. But then I found the YouTube video, so I'm just going to watch the one talk later. Uh, two yeah, talks... everything's recorded, so... Yeah, uh, two talks I was interested in MVP. were... Um, Come back to me. I need to find their names because I'm going to mess this up. One of them was uh, Sarah Allen. Is that her name? Sarah yeah, Allen? she was last. Yeah, because yeah. she had a... I, I know her from... Isn't she in the Ruby world now? She? But her credentials on Hack Summit were related to Flash. Yeah, she made a bunch of designs. I believe she's actually a founder of RailsBridge. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This has not been fact-googled. Fact but let me fact Google right now. Thank you. Sarah Allen, co-creator of After Effects, Flash Video, recent Presidential Innovation Fellow. That's her hack summit thing. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to listen. <laughs> I think her handle is Ultrasaurus. Yes. Uh, her talk was getting a lot of good praise on Twitter. Last I wanted to see that. And also right oh, before nice. her was Chris Richardson gave a talk about microservices, which I'm kind of into recently. Um, talked about microservices and uh, it sounds like event sourcing, which is not storing... Um, an object in a database, but instead storing a list of events that happened and recreating the current state from the events. Did you go to the ETE talk on event sourcing? I did not. Okay. Did you? I did. You should watch a video if you're interested in event sourcing. Can you give me a summary? Uh, basically what you said, but he basically talked about his experience with it. Do you know who the speaker was? Um, Some dude from Lithuania. Yeah, so during my month off, I want to explore uh microservices like i want to want to create a system that is composed of a bunch of small 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 systems in separate code bases uh and i've been ex- trying to think about and, and research i feel like if you do that you'll realize mm-hmm. i I'm, i've heard some interesting feedback people think microservices are overhyped so i think you should make the most microservice thing you can think of to see how far it can be taken yes like like i was thinking like about have, like have like a username service and a password service and a login service <laughs> and you know, is it do people say it's overrated because it's hard to manage all the services and then it's difficult for them to talk to each other? Yeah, and concurrency. Well, so yeah. a lot of times, they, once you introduce microservices, you introduce concurrency, whereas you might not have had concurrency with a single within a single service. But at the same time, the the concurrent operations that you're reducing, the boundaries of those are very explicit. Like the input and out. So, so I'll first talk about the example that I'm going to use. Um, I want to make a Twitter like brand service. So you can sign up and enter some um, search queries. So we could like make a, a search for Turing Incomplete. And then the service would show you a dashboard of who's talking about Turing Incomplete um, and send you like an email once a week with like a report. And it would also provide a sentiment of maybe like if the people talking about you are positive or negative in their tweets. Um, so I was going to build like a Rails front end uh, with no database or anything or any kind of logic, just like presentation and maybe like authentication stuff. Uh, and then like one example would be a uh, sentiment service. So any any other service could ask the sentiment service for the sentiment of a tweet, which would just, I guess, send some text over and it would respond with, um, I guess, a percentage rating i don't know but that's something that could be traditionally handled by a library but if you put it in a service um that that could be making it too far but that seems like yeah it's like I would want to take it. if you put it in a service then 
it, it created more work. But like, let's say, but let's I thought say you, you were. I thought you might say something like you want to have multiple applications and that use your sentiment analysis because you like it so much. Yeah, it, it could. Um, it, or especially for this example, like, well, let's say you had a tweet service or Twitter service. I don't, I don't know. And then that was the thing taking care of the sentiment. What if you added like Facebook to your application? Now you have to get sentiment for a Facebook post. Maybe it would be better just to have a sentiment service that you could just send text to and it would give you back a sentiment. Um, so I don't know. These are just kind of things I'm exploring. Um, I'm also exploring like how to communicate between them. Um, so one way is with REST where you just have HTTP clients, HTTP servers, um, and then you need to... So I guess the trade-offs of that are you explicitly know the endpoint at which you're talking to, like the host name of the service. Um, and then you need to deal with like HTTP, I'll put in quotation marks, overhead, but like, you know, serializing, deserializing tube requests. Um, another thing I was thinking about was like a message bus or a queue, like using RabbitMQ. So, and I started playing with that yesterday and I had the realization that instead of asking a service for something, maybe I'm actually not asking any service. Maybe I'm just sending a request for something and then expect to get a response back later from somewhere. So that was interesting to me. And then the other thing I've been, been researching um, has been, so there are three projects where you can language agnostically define the types of things in your system and also the services and interfaces that, that interact with those types. Um, so Well, maybe. Uh, one is uh, Google Protocol Buffers. Another is Apache Thrift, which came out of Facebook. And another is Avro. And I've, I've researched the most about Thrift. Um, and... So in Thrift, you define types, like you define what a tweet is and like that it has a string and an ID, which is like an insect for, and then you can also define services for RPC, which it like takes care of for you. So like a WSDL. Sounds Uh, like you're defining SOAP and and WSDLs. Yes. um, But a WSDL is for specific service, not for all services, right? Right. Well, you can like reuse those schemas in multiple services. Wait, hold on. Hold on a second. Pam, you still here? Yeah, I've got to go. Pam's got to go. But you all can keep chatting. Do you want to do picks and we'll keep talking? Sure. Um, So I don't know if we've picked this before, but I was going to pick Flux, um, which is F-L-U-X. And it's an app to make your computer more eye-friendly when it's dark outside. So that, say, if hypothetically you're recording the podcast at 7 a.m., you don't blind your eyes right away in the morning because it's dark outside because it's winter. It changes the color temperature, right? Yeah, and you can set your preferences. So I have it on on the darkest. I have it at candlelight when it's night and at the brightest for daylight. But you can change that. And you set it to your latitude and longitude. So it's depending on when sunrise and sunset is. Science. Science. I'm always I'm always conflicted with that because I'm actually a big believer that, you know, blue lights are problematic at light and part of the reason we can't sleep. But then everything just looks weird when it's all red. Oh, yeah, it does look a little weird. And sometimes I'll, I'm watching like a show and I forgot that Flux is on and I realize that that's why everything is a little bit orange. <laughs> I mean, it really is better for your eyes. Yeah. So if you're going to look at a screen, then look at the screen more responsibly. Cool. But yeah, did you all want to do your picks or I'll go? <laughs> uh, you I go your picks. If you'd like. Uh, yeah, I was going to pick um, switch.vim. Um it is a Vim plugin where if you have, for instance, uh, true in a file and you activate switch with the minus key, it will switch it to false. It will switch Ruby hash syntax. It will switch, I think it'll switch like uh, quotation marks between single and double quote. Just, just like a lot of like just really useful things that, that can be tedious to type out. Um, yeah, it can switch between like and, and, or, or. 
Uh, what else can it do? Strings. In Ruby, it'll, it'll switch to a symbol from a string. Uh, so yeah, switch.vim. Javon, do you have a pick? I do. My music pick is uh, an old school uh, hip hop mix by a DJ called DJ Low Spoogie uh, called Danger Doom. And I'll put that in the show notes. And then my other pick is a article Justin posted, which I'll post a link to, um, about having a, pro- a side project before you start a program, uh, before you start learning a new language. So those are my picks. So my pick is an app called ProTube, which is an app we described last episode, and it like materialized literally the next day. Uh, so I was saying I wanted an app that I could listen to YouTube on my phone. And this does exactly that. So if you uh, shut your phone off uh, and you're watching a video, it goes from video to audio. So great for listening to conference talks on the go. Show notes are at turing.cool slash 30. Reach out to us on Twitter at turingcool, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, Pam. Have a good day. (laughs) I have another hour until we usually stop. (laughs) Later. Yeah. So yeah, so Len, thrift, um, so you define, okay, so yeah, SOAP and a WSDL or schema or whatever you want to call it for a specific service is one way to, you know, have guarantees about like data that you're getting and putting into a service. Um, but if you want to use the same data types across multiple services in multiple languages, uh, I, I guess you could get that from a WSDL, um, but I don't know, thrift makes it pretty easy. So what you do is like you define, uh, I don't know. Let's say you have a user class. Well, it's just, that's kind of a dumb example. Let's say you have a tweet class and you have an, a tweet has an ID, which is like a 64-bit integer. And then you also have a, uh, the text of a tweet, which is a string. Um, and then you also have like a user ID, which is a 32-bit integer or whatever, right? So you, you write the, this five-line struct in this .thrift file, and then you can have code generation for multiple languages so you could like output ruby and javascript and java and go and rust and haskell and it will it will make a a value class or a struct or or a type or whatever you want in each language um that matches the types that you define in that struct so you know like in your haskell app and your go app that you have n64s in both places um and then the other level. So, what do you think about that first? <laughs> I think it sounds way too much like soup. How is how is defining types in a language abstract way like soup? Because that's exactly what it does. Like w- what happens in Wizdles. Mm, maybe I haven't. But everybody hates soup, right? Right. So you're saying people hate thrift? That's, I, I've <laughs> not. I've not been uh, convinced because you just described uh, well, the same problem that soup's supposed to solve. That's your theory. Um, the other thing it does, which is going to sound a lot like SOAP, is you can define uh, service interfaces. <laughs> so, so you can say like uh, that you have a get tweet function on the service that takes a, a ID and returns uh, a full tweet struct or whatever. So yeah, that, that's going to sound a lot like that too. But th- so it will actually do code generation to create these service endpoints um, and the client for those services on both ends in different languages. And then all you need to do is tell it how to get data from point A to point B, like a transport or a protocol, actually both of those things. And then you write the implementation for your service. And in a statically typed language, it will check the types of your implementation. So you're saying it'll make like the HTTP call for you. You don't have to like write any of that well so you would need to it, it has different like a like a pluggable interface for a transport and a protocol so a transport is like http and a protocol is like json 
or XML or whatever you want to, or, or binary. Um, you, so you could use a, you could use a binary protocol and a TCP transport, and then you would never even need an HTTP layer and everything would still work the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how this plays out. Like I, I want to experiment with it because I think that if you have a bunch of small services that it's probably good to have a guarantee that the types of things that you write across these services all match. Um, and right now it seems like I, I don't understand it fully. So I'm having trouble like getting it working the right way that I want it to. But it seems like after you understand how it works and you're able to to use it effectively, that it would save a lot of time. Because if you wanted to create a service in a new language, so let's, let's say I wanted my sentiment service in Haskell, which is a good fit because it's pure and there's no state. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can do that stuff with Haskell, but I find it easier without that stuff. So let's say you want to create a sentiment service. So the first thing you would do, you already have your tweet types. Maybe you create a new type for a, a sentiment, which is just a maybe like an alias for a float. Um, I don't know. Um, maybe it also returns a string of like good or bad, or maybe it returns an emoji heart or broken heart. I don't know. So you define that new, um, response and then you define a, a function that takes a tweet text or text and returns your, your sentiment response. Yeah, was, I'm, so, it so should you, just be text, right? If I feel like if your sentiment thing knows that tweets exist. Then right, right, right. It should probably just be text. You're exactly right. So you, you create that thing, the thrift file, which you've just written like three or four lines. You do code generation into Haskell. So it writes all of the, the service definition stuff. And then all you need to write in Haskell is how am I serving this? Um, is it over like HTTP or TCP or RabbitMQ? And then you write the implementation and you don't have to actually do anything else. Like you don't need to bring the types into Haskell, such as like your your tweets or your response. You just new up a response, your, your results, give it to Thrift and it will get it back to the requester. So, it's so like a- if it handles transport, that's kind of cool. I'm just like skeptical about defining everything. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. So it seems like a, a good thing. TM or in quotes or whatever seems like a good thing to have if you have a lot of small services that are distributed um, it seems like a good thing to have a centralized definition of what everything does and what types that they work with cool I'd want to see it um, like if you added if you added a new field uh, would that break the consumer or would it just ignore things that no so all three of these protocol buffers thrift and avro all handle uh type evolution or uh, definition evolution, whatever it's called, scheme evolution. So you can add new fields and all the existing services continue to work. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, um, so you can you can upgrade services independently without breaking anything else. Unless that field's required and your clients aren't requesting the right one. I don't know how that works. Maybe there's like different versions it can run. I don't know, this is stuff that I haven't dealt with yet. If you make like an int 32 and int 64, that'll probably break things, right? Um. Well, I guess the examples they were using were more about changing or adding to the structure, not necessarily changing the structure. I don't I don't know how it handles changes, but it seems to handle additions pretty pretty well. Like if you add your emoji result to your sentiment service, the things that didn't know about that previously will continue to work even though the service is responding with that new emoji thing. Hmm. Um you can use binary protocols when you want things to be really small and fast. You can use text protocols or JSON when you want to ease debugging. And then the other thing that I'm thinking about too is do you drop these requests and responses or, you know, events on a on a message bus or a queue and let any, anybody listen to them? Or uh, do you use something like we talked about earlier, like event sourcing? Do you put it in something like Kafka, which keeps a replayable log of all that, hmm. which, which also seems kind of cool? 
I probably should limit the amount of things I'm playing with and just keep it really simple. <laughs> so so the simplest thing would be just be to, to make services over Rust, because I understand Rust. Um, right. But the nature of this demo app that I'm playing with would require me to have a, <clears throat> a queue or an event bus for, for some asynchronous stuff. Yeah. If you didn't watch the promiscuous video yet, part of the reason we did that was because the service we were talking to was like super slow. So it was able to like kind of do its work and queue up the next thing and ping back the Rails app whenever it was ready. What is the promiscuous video? Um, promiscuous IO, which is like Rails models shared over, over RabbitMQ. Oh, interesting. So you can make a change in one app and it'll get propagated to the other app. Is this required to have all of your things in Rails or Ruby? Yes, it's just Rails, no, Ruby gem. In this case, one of our apps was Rails, one was Sinatra. And they, I might need Mongo, or no, I think it could be any actual model thing. Promiscuous.io. Huh. So I'm, I'm also interested in like language agnosticism. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, I think that if you're in a company on a production system, you probably limit the amount of technology you use for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but you should still have the freedom to introduce new technologies as you see fit. That's such a, yeah, that's such a terrible trade-off. It's problematic to like, if you're a consultancy, right? And you've got probably like arguably higher caliber people and you're fine with learning Haskell, learning Clojure, but then... It's harder to get like in-house people that can get up to speed on that. So now, if you want to hire somebody new, you have to hire somebody who knows, you know, Rails, who knows database, who knows Haskell, who knows every language in your stack. Hmm. Yeah, it would be nice. Yeah, you definitely want to be pragmatic about like limiting the technology you use, but then you also don't want to like use Java for everything, do you? You can use the JVM for everything. Yeah, that doesn't really buy you a lot though because like you still need to like learn closure or scala or whatever else is one of the jvm days ruby jruby um yeah i mean it's a terrible trade-off i mean yeah i, I like on one hand i want to think that there are, <clears throat> are a lot of developers that are comfortable learning new languages and can get speed fairly quickly and i think that if you have truly small services they first of all they shouldn't need to change very often or be redeployed and when they do need to be changed they should be simple enough to reason about even for a language newbie um, and you also have the benefit that you can rewrite them very easily, right? Like under a week. Um, but yeah, you also don't want to be like rewriting things time. Yeah. So, so, so how much of this is like a perfect world? Like I hear you say, no, no, I, I know, I know. <clears throat> yeah. And, and another thing that's interesting to me is like things like, um, drop wizard or what's that other, the Java one. Um, anybody Bueller? What is that JVM like service thing? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh. What is Drop Wizard? <laughs> um, let me research this. Hold on one sec. Drop Wizard. I think Drop Wizard came out of LinkedIn. Essentially, it's a like bundle of of different products and projects that. Well, from the website, it says Drop Wizard has out of the box support, sophisticated configuration, application metrics, logging, operational tools, and much more, allowing your team to ship a production quality web service in the shortest time possible. So it basically just takes a bunch of uh, libraries from the Java ecosystem um, and packages them together to like enable you to make these services that can talk to each other like a box. Um, so I, I, it's just interesting to, interesting to me to have something that already has all this stuff built in, um, but then you're tied into a language once again. I think it would be cool to explore that, and it might be a good fit for a lot of projects and teams. I just am interested in more of a language agnostic route. Check out Drop Wizard, and if I ever figure out the other thing I'm talking about, I'll post a link to that too. Oh, Torquebox. Torquebox. Oh, okay. So Torquebox is JRuby um, 
on top of something. Yeah, people talked about running Rails in Torquebox, and I never understood why you would do that. It's because it like has a bunch of stuff like um like background processing and messaging and like microservices, all kinds of stuff like all built into it. Um, so if you want to like queue up background jobs, you don't need to like install a gem, install you know like delayed job or rescue or sidekick in Redis. You just use the Torquebox job queuing service. Hmm. So once again, that's that seems like a really cool thing to do. Um, but I'm. Erlang does the same thing, right? Like you can have um, a bunch of Erlang actors, which are essentially services that talk over the integrated Erlang messaging stuff. Uh, and it'd be very easy for you to introduce new actors, which act as like microservices. Um, but same thing, you're kind of then tied to Erlang. I don't know. That's all I got for <laughs> microservice discussion. Uh, watch that talk. I'll post a link um, from Hackhand or Hack Summit, which I have not watched yet, but I will. Are all the Hack Summit videos coming up on YouTube? Uh, so they're on YouTube, and they tweeted out the links, but there's no like centralized place to find the videos. I think they're really encouraging people to like subscribe and watch them live. Mm. Um, but yeah, I have to imagine that eventually they'll post a link to all these videos at some point. Are we done? Sure.